the journey and the dream, our story. It was time to move on to a new world, to a new life. After his father died, the Lord made him move from there to this land where you now dwell. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verse 4. We always seem to do monumental things on one of our birthdays, anniversaries, or saints' feast days. We flew to California on our daughter's birthday. We rented apartments on the same floor, facing the Pacific Ocean, and began our new life. When we owned our own company, we sold to retail stores in California. Because of the laid-back work ethic of our sales reps, we knew there would be great opportunity for us as manufacturers representatives there. But when you are on top, everyone wants you. No one likes a loser. And by this time, we had lost our manufacturing company. Within six months, things got so bad, the finance company came and took our one car away from us. So now, unless we could lease a car, both we and our son-in-law will not be able to go out on the road to sell. The Bible tells us, Make friends for yourselves through your use of the world's goods, so that when they fail you, a lasting reception will be yours. This was not to be the case. Those we had helped could not help us. But God, never leaving us orphans, alone and helpless, used a young couple whom we had only treated to dinner twice to volunteer to co-sign a note, enabling us to purchase a car. We have never heard from them again, but they are forever in our prayers. Bob will not allow me to go out with him and sell, as the only line we could get was some Mickey Mouse jewelry. After our company having won worldwide acclaim, he didn't want me to be subjected to the humiliation he suffered each day. So once again, he was my hero and defender. He came home many a night, not having sold enough to cover the cost of gas. But the next morning, he went out again. Then we got a line of merchandise which, although it was not doing well in our territory, held great promise. Being workaholics and loving it, we made the line an overnight success. After it reached the million-dollar mark in volume, we got notice from the distributors that they were going to take the line away from us and give it to two of their friends. No hard feelings. It's just business. Don't take it personally. It was my birthday, September 23, 1968. Years later, we discovered it was the same day that Padre Pio had gone to heaven and is now his feast day. Could it have been the Lord speaking to us through the death of Padre Pio? Our two families had moved into one house in Malibu to save money. Despondent, I walked down the hill to the beach below, and God forgive me, I wanted to walk into the ocean. I just didn't know how we were going to survive. A day will come in the near future when I will pray that that kind of problem and grief was the worst I would ever endure. The day the world stopped. In 1987, in our book, We Came Back to Jesus, I wrote, There are stories which must be told. For me, this is one of those stories. It has been over 16 years in the making. You see, on October 23, 1971, I died. Now, as I am writing this, our love story, it has been close to 30 years since that day the world stopped. I thought that time would have dulled the pain 
and that I would be able to write more objectively, but that is not to be the case. Bob always says that no one really writes objectively, only some admit it and others do not. In no way have our books or articles ever been anything but personal and passionate and subjective. And this is terribly passionate and extremely subjective. One of the things we hesitate to speak on, unless the Holy Spirit so wills it, is the nightmare of having lost our dear son Richard. At my father's funeral, when our son Richard, at age seven, said, Don't you believe in your religion? My answer was, Of course I do but I am selfishly grieving for myself and my loss. Now, as I write once again, traveling back not 16 years, but almost 30 years, I want to cry out, Yes, son, I believe in my religion, and I have hope in the resurrection. I believe you are in heaven, although I have prayed for you and all the poor souls in purgatory at daily mass each day for this many years. I am happy that no one can harm you, even yourself. But I miss you and the warmth of your arms opening wide, enveloping me, welcoming me home from my trip. I know that when my time comes, you'll be there, up front, as when you were a young boy, the first to welcome me, only now into our eternal home. Son, as I am writing, I wonder if I grieve so much because I miss you so, or more for the pain you endure while on earth. When I was three months pregnant with you, I started to hemorrhage. They wanted to take me to the hospital so that they could abort you, claiming I would die if they did not. I refused, choosing to die with you, if need be. But I did not die. You and I fought, and you came into the world. Pain was to be your partner right from birth. You were a breech birth. The doctor had to go in and turn you around before you could come into the world. Oh, you were so beautiful. The nurses said you were one of the most beautiful babies the hospital had ever had with your curly dark hair and great big almond eyes framed by the longest curliest eyelashes, rosy cheeks, and sweet smile. You were so good. When the nurses brought you to me after bringing all the other babies to their mothers, I will tell you, why don't you fuss so they will bring you in earlier? By being the little gentleman, as they love to call you, you just patiently waited to last. Son, you were born in pain and you died in pain. Your 19 years on earth were those of pain right to the end. When you were a baby, you could not hold down your milk. They called it colic in those days, but now I believe you were probably allergic to milk. Soon after, you developed asthma and stress didn't help your condition. Physical pain was accompanied by the pain of rejection from your birth father and his family. Poor little guy, how could you understand that your only sin was that you were born a boy and would not be circumcised by a rabbi? As your Jewish father had agreed, our children would be brought up Catholic. Son, if you had known what life would be like for you, would you have fought so hard to be born? I believe you will say yes even today. Because as much as I loved you, you loved me that much more. Penny's Nightmare In our book, We Came Back, this portion was called Penny's Nightmare, and indeed it was a nightmare. Till today, I wish I could wake up and discover it was all a bad dream, but I cannot, and so I share with you 
that which refuses to be buried six feet underground. The day the world stopped. When did it begin? Was it the night our daughter called us in New York two years before in 1969? After years of financial struggle, at last we were seeing some light, or so we thought. A big greeting card company had bought the name of our company, and we were in New York on a business trip. The way our daughter said, Mother, I knew something was wrong, but I was not prepared for Richard is in jail. She said he had been charged with possession of marijuana. In a fog and complete state of shock, I took the first plane back to California, praying all the way. It was the day Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. It should have been a happy day for our family, as it was for our country, but I could only concentrate on what I believed to be the beginning of the disintegration of our family. As soon as the plane landed, I rushed with my daughter to the jail. There must be some mistake. My thoughts kept shouting. He's innocent. Please, Jesus, make it a mistake. He had been at a party, he said, and when the police raided the party, they found a roach on the refrigerator. They arrested everyone at the party. I'm innocent, he pleaded. Till today, I believe him. However, he later shared that he had been high on LSD at the time he was arrested. Richard began to get speeding tickets. He claimed the police were harassing him because he was young, because he wore his hair long, because he had olive skin and looked Mexican, because he had a sports car. One night, I can't remember exactly what had happened, he was lying on the couch when he began to cry uncontrollably. I am a bad boy, Mama. Oh, if only you knew how bad I am. My stupid reply was, oh, you're not bad. You don't know how to be bad. Why hadn't I just listened instead of speaking? Our son always wanted to belong, to be accepted. When we left New York to live in California, Bob and I were complete. We had each other and our immediate family. Our daughter had her husband and baby. They were ready for a new life, but Richard left his friends. We never thought Richard, or any of us for that matter, had a New York accent. His new California classmates did. They used this to poke fun at the new kid at best and to ostracize him at worst. His clothes were the latest style, but New York style. So to fit in, he changed to ultra-conservative clothes. Years later, after Richard's death, I read his diary. In it, he wrote how for six months he had tried to stop his classmates and by now friends from smoking marijuana. He shared that while on a school ski trip, his group was abandoned by their high school instructor during a snowstorm in the mountains. And after fighting it for two days, he finally gave in and smoked his first marijuana cigarette. I sometimes wish I had kept his diary to show the day-by-day -day decaying of his mind, his spirit, his very will. When Richard first got into trouble with drugs, we reached out to our young parish priest whom he loved and respected. We needed his help. His answer was, I'm no psychologist. I have my own problems. We didn't know about psychologists. We come from a generation that went to their priest for advice. You told the priest your problems, he told you what to do, and you did it. But as our young priest told us, he had his own problems. We were in a different time. It was a new generation. 
so we took our son to a psychologist, but this was new to psychologists too. They knew as little as we did about drugs. As a result, they used us guinea pigs. Scrambling in every direction, they resorted to textbook psychology for answers to questions we and they didn't know. One psychologist called Bob and me into the room during a session with Richard. The psychologist asked, do you love Jesus more than your son? All the automatic responses from my Baltimore catechism days came back. Yes, I love Jesus more. The psychologist pointed his finger into the air. He had found the answer. That's why your son takes marijuana. Dear Lord, that was such a bad time. No one had any idea what to do or say. But how stupid were we not to know how to deal with that psychologist? You have to remember, though, that we really didn't know our faith. I had a very emotional relationship with Jesus, more with the heart than the head. Had we known more about our beautiful Lord Jesus, we would have known that the psychologist's question was loaded to begin with. It was against everything Jesus thought. If God has loved us so, we must have the same love for one another. No one has ever seen God. Yet, if we love one another, God dwells in us, and His love is brought to perfection in us. The love we have for Jesus was manifested in the love we have for our Son. We could not have possibly loved Jesus if we did not love the gift He had created, our Son. Another psychologist gave us his words of wisdom. Your son says the only reason he stays alive is because you will die or lose your mind if he died. You must tell him you won't die or go crazy if he dies. You see, he must live for himself, not for others. Now, as I think back, I recall Jesus' words to Peter. Get out of my sight, you Satan. You are trying to make me trip and fall. You are not judging by God's standards, but by man's. This should have been my answer. Like Peter, was he not speaking with the words and wisdom of the world? Instead, I sobbed. I won't go crazy, son. I won't die. But I lied. I did die. I had always thought that drugs and drug addiction were for movie people, musicians, slums, barrios, the underprivileged, not for middle-class, church-going, law-abiding citizens. After we discovered that our son had a problem, Bob and I went to a lecture on drug prevention at our church, Our Lady of Malibu. A Catholic nun was giving us 12 essential pointers on how to keep your youngsters from falling victim to drugs. I wanted to shout, you're describing our family. We prayed together, played together, laughed and cried together. We discussed everything from politics to religion together. Sometimes we had heated discussions. We trusted one another. We did everything together. Richard was the head of the parish teen group. He idolized the young priest at our church. We did everything right. We never knew the signs. His eyes were red. Well, he was allergic to grass and weeds. He had weird posters in his room and listened to songs like Puff the Magic Dragon and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and albums by the Doors, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. We didn't like the loud music. We couldn't understand the words, but it seemed harmless enough. Didn't all the young people listen to them? After having attended 12 years of Catholic schools, 
After his first week in philosophy class as a freshman in a secular university, our son came home and told us, There is no God. I thought this was a face. No, no, no. It was the drugs. He seemed to be talking in circles. His father and I found it more and more difficult to understand him. Having a near-genius IQ, we always looked upon him as being superior intellectually. We judged he had gone way past us. We were not smart enough to understand him. He sounded all right, but we were having such a hard time making sense out of what he was saying. How we tried. He had us convinced that we were the ones who were confused. But it wasn't him. It was the drugs that had taken over our boy's brilliant mind who were speaking. And because we did not know the enemy, we couldn't fight him. St. Paul tells us, to draw our strength from the Lord and from his mighty power. Put on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. Years later, after our son had died, we would discover who the source of drugs and alcohol really was. One Saturday, members from our parish were in our garage pricing gifts, which we were donating to the yearly Oktoberfest. As I was about to walk into the kitchen, I was stopped by the voice of a young man whom we always saw in church with his little family, a Bible under his arm. I couldn't help overhearing him tell my Bob, I am a recovering alcoholic. I have not had a drop to drink for the last 12 years. When I was drinking, I would come home from work, eat a little, and drink a lot, until I fell asleep in a stupor. The next day, I went to work, and my boss was never the wiser. My work did not suffer. I did not abuse my family, but I wasn't for them emotionally or spiritually. On weekends, I drank until I passed out. The weekend over, I left for work and put in a good week's work. He continued, This went on for years, until one night, I had followed my usual routine of drinking and passing out when I was awakened by a strange, terrifying sound. I looked into the face of a creature that was neither man nor beast. I asked him who he was, and he replied that he was the devil of drugs. As he described his powers, he became more and more grotesque. He said he caused divorces, infidelity, physical and mental abuse, murder, suicide, and a host of other horrors. With each power, he grew more and more hideous and terrifying until I cried out, Be gone, Satan! And with that, the fallen angel disappeared. The young man said that was the last time he'd had a drink. When Richard left home to move into a college dorm, we were happy because we thought it would be good for him to live with other college students. Fraternities that symbolized youth and education, social interaction in our day, turned out to be a haven and headquarters for drug dealers. Not six months after moving into the dormitory, he moved out, upward and onward to a crash pad with bikers. Our son, who had the intelligence as well as the required credits before he completed high school to graduate college in, at most, two years, left college after only six months and chose to become a mechanic, building and rebuilding motorcycles. 
We tried so hard to bridge the generation gap, as he was called. I will hold my breath as Bob tried to renew his last relationship with his son by attempting to ride one of Richard's motorcycles. No matter how many times Bob fell, he would get on again. He wanted to do things with his son, even if he was riding a motorcycle. Although I have never been able to ride even a bicycle, one day I agreed to ride on the back of Richard's motorcycle. He wanted to share, he said, the feeling of freedom he had riding on a motorcycle. Holding on to my son for dear life, it wasn't freedom I felt, but raw fear, coupled with sheer determination to not let go of my son to recapture the closeness we once had. He turned to me one day, Stay as you are. I need you to come home back to. Don't worry, Mama. I'll come full circle. He had been living away from home for almost a year when one day we received a phone call from one of his friends. Richard was in county hospital. His jaw was broken. He had been beaten badly by some bikers on Venice Beach. They said Richard didn't know they were calling, but they knew we wouldn't want him in county hospital. It seems no private hospital will take him without insurance. We rushed to the county hospital to see our beautiful son, beaten almost unrecognizably. There was no room in the ward, so he was in a bed in the hallway. His jaw was broken and will have to be wired shut. We immediately brought him to UCLA Medical Center. I remember my son telling the young doctor there, I am an addict. I can't take any drugs. To which the young doctor replied, We'll take care of the jaw first, meaning he give him morphine for the pain. We'll worry about your drug addictions later. But later never came. Even as I write this, more than 28 years later, I cry for my precious boy, who was trying, if only in a small way, to free himself of the devil of drugs. He came home to our home from the hospital. We knew in our hearts he wouldn't stay with us forever, but we prayed. He wanted me with him constantly. He will hold on to me tightly when the rest of the family called me to cook dinner. He will look at me with so much love, saying, Let them do it. I want you with me. The doctor then prescribed methadone, more powerful than morphine, but less habit-forming for the pain, he said and also to help him come down from the morphine. My son told me, Hold on to the methadone. Only give it to me as prescribed. I'm going to fight you, lie to you, anything to get my hands on it. Don't give it to me. I'm sure my eyes said, You never lied to me, not you. You never lied to me. Because he said, Mama, you can never believe me again. I would lie, steal, cheat, anything for drugs. Two months after his beating on the beach, while he was still recuperating at home, the doorbell rung. It was Richard's friends, one a former college classmate. I had tried to keep them from him. I even turned down the bell on the telephone so he could hear it. I felt if I could only keep them from getting at him, he might have a chance. He had cut his hair. He was trying to get a job. This young man, who had had a photographic memory, who could pull A-plus with virtually no studying, was having difficulty filling out a simple application for a job, but he was trying. Richard had once told me, 
Mama, I love you so much. The only way I can leave you is by fighting with you. I remember saying, no, honey, I'll let you go whenever you want to leave. To which he answered, it's not you, Mama, it's me. Richard angrily left our home with his friends. He wanted his grandfather's rifle, and Bob would not allow him to take it. Since Richard had been heavy into drugs before his beating, living and associating with bikers, Bob was afraid someone, maybe even our own son, might use the gun to kill in order to get drugs. The next two months passed very slowly, very painfully, after Richard left the house with his friends. We never heard a word from him directly, only from our son-in-law, Leo, whom he kept in touch with. One evening, I went to a baby shower with my daughter. I didn't really want to go, but Bob thought it would be good for me to take my mind off Richard. There was a woman there who I wanted no part of, but seeing my rejection, she came over to me and said, You have two children. One has to make a decision, and you are keeping him from making it. I counter with, that's how much you know. He's away from home, and I haven't spoken to him for weeks. Now she had my attention. Every time he tries to make a decision, your worries stop him. From now on, when you start to worry, place the face of Jesus over the face of your son and say, He is yours, Lord. In the weeks ahead, I tried, oh, how I tried. A thousand, two thousand, ten thousand times a day. I tried. I will see the face of Jesus and the face of Richard, but they were far apart. I couldn't bring them together. I prayed over and over again, Oh Jesus, he's yours. You gave me the most precious son in the world. I don't know how to take care of him. I can't help him. You take care of him. Take him. He's yours. The night the world stopped. It was five minutes after midnight. Five minutes into a new day, October 23, 1971. My boy will be 20 years old in one month and 17 days. The phone rang. It was Leo, our son-in-law. Richard just called. He excitedly told my husband. He was crying. He said to tell you he was ready to come home. He gave me his address and asked that you pick him up tomorrow. He also said to tell you he loves you, Dad. Mama, his sister, and the baby, our grandson, and that he didn't take drugs because of you. It was something he was compelled to do. It was all his fault. What did he say? I was almost shouting, let's go and get him right now, tonight. I was pleading, barely able to sit still, desperate. Bob replied, Penny, he's a young man. We have to stop treating him like a baby. He's ready to come home. He asked us to wait until tomorrow. If he wanted us to pick him up tonight, he'd have said so. We have to respect his wishes. I cannot explain the fear that overtook me. My heart was pounding in my chest. I felt like it was going to pump out of my mouth. I was in a state of panic. I started to pray, as if my life depended on it, not knowing how much it did. As if he could hear my very thoughts, Bob said, I don't know what's wrong with you. You should be happy. Our son's coming home. I couldn't put my fear into words, but it was there. It was so real. I don't know how long I prayed. It must have been at least an hour. It seemed more like an eternity. I kept repeating, He's yours, Lord. 
I failed. You take care of him. He's yours. Slowly, the sad face of our crucified Lord, his crown of thorns bleeding, his face covered with sweat and wounds, came towards Richard's face and covered my son's face until all I saw was the face of Jesus. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply, with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.